I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine, the show where we try to have a little sneak peek inside the working day of some of the world's most successful writers. Uh, This week, our guest is Caroline Scott. Her new novel is The Photographer of the Lost. It's a twisting, turning story set at the end of the First World War. Now, she's a writer and a historian. She's worked really throughout her career on the forgotten stories from the Great War. And we talk about why that period of history fascinates her so much and how she ensure that her writing and her stories stay absorbed and realistic in that era. And we also chat about how, at at first, everything comes so easily. Uh, But for her, the real craft is in making it all come together at the end. I'm a big editor. I've 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 been through this one probably a thousand times. So, yeah, and then I'm really, really careful about every word and phrase and the rhythm and the rhymes and the sound of the language. And, yeah, I'll pick over that for ages until I get it. it, I read it out loud um, because, yeah, I, I want it to sound right. There is all that and loads more on the way with Caroline Scott this week in Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along. My name's Dan. This is Writer's Routine. Before we crack on with today's show, I really just want to say thanks for all the nice stuff that you've been saying, the kind words that you've been firing my way uh, as reviews on the Apple Podcast Store. Emails as well coming over to writersroutine.com from all around the world. Uh, So thank you so much for sending those and keep them coming. It's always nice to know that this ramshackle thing that I'm kind of working on, uh, cobbling together uh, every week, is going down well and is helping the way that you tell your stories. So please do keep those coming. Uh, Now this week on the show we have Caroline Scott on. Her new novel, The Photographer of the Lost, is simply fantastic, really. It's a twisty, turny, brilliantly romantic tale all about Eddie. Eddie, whose husband Francis, is considered missing in action after the First World War. But when she gets a photo taken by Francis in the post, hope springs and she begins the search. Also, at the same time, Francis's brother Harry is on his own search too, and their paths come together and then come closer to the startling truth. Now, Caroline is is fascinated by that period just after the First World War. She says it's it's fruitful for stories because people don't really know too much about it, and and that rings true, doesn't it? I mean, I don't really have a clue what happened after the First World War. Aside from the Treaty of Versailles and the Wall Street crash, what you get taught at school. I don't really know what happened between the two wars. So it's kind of a blank canvas, isn't it? It's really fruitful for telling stories. Uh, And that's what makes it so appealing to her 
as a storyteller, you've got all this to play with, all these facts that not many people know, you can blend them in with your imagination. Now, we talk about that uh, and about how she approached that era. We also find out how she plots, how she blends facts from history with the fiction of her story. Oh, and also, she's got just a, a fantastic writing spot. Uh, stick around for that. I reckon you might get just a teeny tiny little bit jealous. We kick off with that, as always, with Caroline Scott, the author of The Photographer of the Lost. And we start with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. In theory, I have a dedicated writing space, but the reality of it is I tend to sort of drift around my house quite a lot. So in principle, if it's a good day, if I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing, I'm up on the top floor of my house. Um, I live in an old farmhouse. It's a converted tobacco loft up at the top. When we first bought it, there were all the wires where all the tobacco used to hang and you could see the sky through the roof in several places, which was interesting. But thankfully, it's all now been renovated. And it, yeah, in theory, that is my office space now. So I have a desk at the end and the walls slope down. I have Felix windows and on the wall in front of my desk, I've usually got lots of photographs that are related to the plot that I'm currently working on um, I'm, I'm, I'm writing historical novels so and I work really um, intensively with photographs from the, the period that I'm working on so um, usually I've got lots of photos of locations and I also collect postcards of faces that sort of inspire my character so I've got sort of yes yeah, so I'm sitting there and I'm looking at all these usually ruined villages in northern France and Belgium and faces that inspire my characters so that is my normal place that's where I'm meant to be anyway well let's expand on that you you said meant to be normal place in theory I'm meant to be there but you're a bit of a wanderer what, what? I wander around the house quite often I'm downstairs at the dining room table and my dog is downstairs my dog is very elderly and I like her company so quite often I drift downstairs and the dog is under my feet and I'm at the dining room table um, and there are papers everywhere and laptop and everything and it, it's not looking like a dining room table at all it's looking like complete chaos um, it's probably very unhygienic and I push my papers back at meal times and I sort of eat surrounded by my current project um, and um, in the summer I, I quite often work in the garden as well so yeah it, sort of, it drifts around with me during the course of the day so well, why, why do you think that is if you've got a lot of the inspiration for your story up there with you in the loft you've got the photographs you've got the postcards yeah. why do you feel the need to be quite a parapatetic and you know place yourself and hook yeah. yourself from here to I there it's good just, to have a, just to walk around a bit just have, have a change of scene really just sort of break it up a bit um yeah i'm sort of i'm really in my zone when i'm up on the top floor but sometimes sort of i know if i'm writing a scene and i'm into it anyway and i don't necessarily sort of need to keep touching base with things to inspire me if i know where i'm going then i'll take that with me and i'll move around and i mean you've got a writer's dream i would imagine because you live in a hamlet in the south of france and it's very quiet. There's very little noise to distract with. There's only my neighbour in his barn, usually hammering at something. Um, yeah, and just the bird song and the quiet. And I go for walks quite regularly during the course of the day because I've got a dog. And that's lovely. That's really inspiring too. And it's good to just get out and look at the countryside. And that sort of seems to sort of, I know, charge the electricity to your brain. And yeah, that gets you going again when you get stuck. So I'm lucky, really. Yeah. I mean, incredibly lucky. Yeah, I, 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 I just, know that. I, I can yeah. imagine writers listening just... <laughs> Envy it when, is like when a writer's they're in their... retreat, really. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So when you're up there in your loft, yeah. you say you've got the postcards, you've got the maps, you've got the photographs. Is there anything else that's story related in there? For instance, if I were to just wander into your loft, plonk myself down, yeah. would I get an idea of the actual plot that you were telling through I what I see? I probably would, because... Um... 
I say I've got lots of postcards from the First World War and sort of um, particularly working on with this with this one I was looking at a lot of the post-war landscape so I've got a lot of photographs of ruined towns ruined villages I also got a lot of cameras I always collected vintage cameras and because sort of the theme of this is a photographer um, it's been quite nice sort of like to reach those out of suitcases and boxes and things and have those around me while I've been working on it not like do anything with them they just sit there and gather dust but in theory they are there for inspiration so yeah I think if you walked in you get a pretty good idea of the type of thing that I do what about any planning is there you know whiteboard <laughs> post-it notes I mean you pulled a face so I'd imagine did, not so. but just expand for us I'm not a post-it note person I have to say I've written two novels now and I've written them completely differently um, The Photographer of the Lost when I started writing it I didn't have a publishing contract I didn't have an agent so it was my hobby it was my pleasure it's what I did in my off time um, nobody, was, nobody was cracking the whip at me I could just I could do it when I wanted to and um, so that sort of happened very organically it just I just went with the flow of it. But then my second novel, which I've just finished writing, was a totally different experience. I plotted that one out really carefully. I knew exactly where I was going beforehand. So for that one, I did have maps on the wall and chapter plans. So yeah, there have been two completely different experiences. So I'm not quite sure what the third one will be. We'll find out. <laughs> I think we'll expand on that. But what are you taking with you? Is it just the laptop? Uh, usually when I'm doing the first draft, I always do it longhand on paper. So... Um, I meant to have a book in which I do this, but generally ends up being lots of scraps of random paper. So all over the house, all of, on every surface, there are bits of plot going on. Um, yeah, so generally sort of it's just it's a pen and paper and I'm traveling around with a, a piece of paper or a notebook and yeah, it then all gets typed up. Um, and usually I print out my first draft and I'll do some tidying, but I like to keep going. I don't like to sort of fuss too much over getting every word perfect. And if I can't quite think of the right image, I'll leave an ellipsis and I'll come back to it. I, I just can't kind of try and keep the momentum going. So yeah. Why longhand? Why are you making it harder for yourself? Because I'm really old. <laughs> that just sort of seems natural to me. Um, I have really terrible handwriting. Quite often the things I've written, I can't decipher them. So there's probably some brilliant ideas in there, but I have no idea what they are and nobody else will ever find them. <laughs> um, yeah, that just seems actually just the way I've always done it. I mean, I've always sort of done a bit of creative writing on the side from being at university. And that's sort of, that's just my natural automatic way of doing it, really. That If I were to force you to write the first draft yeah. on the keyboard without your paper and pen. Ooh, that's very mean. You know, <laughs> do you think that would change the way that first draft is would it make it more clean cut or perhaps are you losing a sense of the the connection and the romance in there I think I'd find it quite awkward really writing pen on paper it's I write really fast um, and it's quite fluid my typing is really dreadful and really slow I'm a two-finger typist so I think if I had to do it on the keyboard I think sort of my fingers wouldn't be keeping up with my train of thoughts so yeah, and I have sort of my own shorthand and things. So yeah, I, I, I write really fast on paper and then I type up very, very slowly and then edit very, very slowly. So if I were to pick up your first draft that's written in uh, a very Caroline Scott uh, freehand... You wouldn't be able to read it. It's like in code. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's what I was going to ask you. Is, yeah. it, is it at all intelligible? Um, you'd struggle, I think, really. <laughs> Terrible handwriting, lots of abbreviations, um, lots of scribbling all over the place. I edit myself a little bit on paper as I'm going. So, yeah, it sort of, it looks like the, the page of a crazy person, really. Well, I was going to ask take that. a psychiatrist to pick it apart, I think. There you go. When yeah. you see scary films and there's often someone locked away in a prison just desperately scrawling. That's around. me, yes. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yes. <laughs> it's rather determined by dogs. Um, I have a 15-year-old, very large bearded collie who... Um, 
she has to come first. So um, first thing in the morning is usually I'm, I'm out for a good walk. And, and that's a really nice way to start your day. It sort of really gets your blood flowing and your oxygen to your brain. And I often think about what I'm going to do during the rest of the day while I'm walking. Um, I talk to my dog as well. I, I work through dialogue with her. <laughs> Poor dog listens to an awful lot. Um, and work through plot ideas and... Um, and it's also it's just nice just to look at the country around and how different it is from day to day. And when I'm writing things set in a rural setting, that is really inspiring. And I take things from that experience. Um, so usually I'll be out with a dog for I don't know three quarters of an hour, something like that. Home, coffee on. Um, and then usually I'll faff around on the Internet for a bit, as most people do. <laughs> Spend a lot of time looking at... Uh, rightmove.com and auction sites and things like that and you live in the south of France you've got your own like, barn in I the like south of France I like looking at houses though. I love old houses and, and quite often in my plots I like to have a house as a character um, so okay. I'm a bit addicted to sort of to looking at old stones I love crumbly old buildings so yeah I, I can lose hours on Rightmove <laughs> well I saw two things I saw the other day they released uh, Zoopla and Rightmove released some statistics that say yeah. like 90% of mansions that are looked at online are just never, ever, ever, ever bought, ever. I know from experience, having spent a lot of time on there, that there are certain <laughs> houses that stay on there for years. So, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. You mentioned giving a house a character. Can you? Yeah. What do you mean by that? I, I, as a reader, I often like books where the house is an extra sort of personality in the novel. Um, I like old properties sort of the, where you have a sense of all the people who lived there beforehand. Um, and in both of my books, there are ancient houses houses the the plot revolves around um and i, I like to give the reader sort of a, a sense of what's around and sort of the, the um the whole history of the place and what's been through those walls before and every detail of the decor and the architecture and everything i, I like to place things and where do you think that comes from do you do you recall reading where, uh, a story maybe in your formative years when you were much younger when you were a child that I guess I read a lot of the Brontes, I suppose, when I was a kid. So yeah, I guess it's sort of it's it's, it's Jane Eyre, it's Wuthering Heights, sort of it's all the, those personalities of properties that sort of that imbued all through the text. And if those properties were taken out of it, it was a different property. It would be a completely different story. So yeah, I, I like placing and the shadows that the property casts over the story. And well, let's place you back in your day. Then I've I've distracted us. So you you right. you've had your morning of walking the door, getting some coffee. Scanning through right move, <laughs> um, looking at the same mentions over and over again. Yes. W- what happens now? What time do you think you start writing? Probably, I guess, uh, 10 o'clock-ish, I suppose. Yeah. And then um, I will try to be fairly disciplined. Um, I'm not bad, actually, because I, I was self-employed for years. So I'm, I'm, I am actually pretty good at the routine and the discipline of sort of getting down the desk and making myself do a good long stint. Um, I'll sometimes break for lunch. I sometimes don't if I'm going with something I'll often carry on through um, dog needs to go out again at four o'clock so we break again at four o'clock and usually have about a good hour's walk at four o'clock and I'm ready for it then I'm ready for a bit of fresh air and a bit of change of scene um, and then I'll, I'll come back and I'll start again and quite often I don't finish till about seven o'clock um, by which point I'm ready to sit down and have a glass of wine um, but if I'm really going with something I'm really into writing a scene I often quite carry on into the evening really as well so yeah I get lost in it so yeah well, I can imagine so because to write for almost six mm. um, uninterrupted hours yeah. in freehand I mean on a very simple level it's, it's going to hurt your arm <laughs> it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to ache I can barely write for six <laughs> minutes without it hurting so how much how, what is you said 
working so, as being a self-employed person for mm. years that you've you, you've got that drive what is your focus like over those six hours you mentioned you lose I drift yourself. in and out yeah I don't think anybody can concentrate fully for that amount of time so yeah I'll, I'll go for a good hour and then I'll get up and I'll go and make a cup of coffee and have another little faff on Twitter or something like that and then try and get myself back into it again within about another half hour but um yeah generally through the day I do take breaks I'm not sort of chained to my desk for the entirety of the of the day but um yeah I think it's natural everybody you have to take a bit of a break and just sort of refocus your eyes and rest your hand <laughs> how many words will you hope to get down in, in in a day of writing um if I'm going really well I think sort of maximum about four or five thousand if I'm really on it mm. yeah and, and how many days a week do you try and write um it depends and I say this book sort of it happened really organically it happened over a long course of time I wasn't sort of under any time pressure to do it but the second book that I did I wrote it really fast I wrote it sort of within I suppose a couple of months really got the first draft down so um and I wasn't actually at home during that period I was dog and house sitting for friends um so I was in a strange house it was really quiet nobody called um I was at their dining table and I just I, I wrote day after day after day after day and it wrote itself really, really easily. The second book, I knew exactly where I was going with it and it just it spilled out onto the pages and yeah, day after day, I was just really dedicated to that one and it happened. With the photographer of the loss, uh, of the lost, you say you weren't as structured as you were yeah. for your second book. It was quite far removed. How, do, how did you know what you wanted to get down at the start of every day? How did you know where the story was taking you? I knew what was going to happen to the characters. I hadn't necessarily put that down on paper, but I knew in my head where we were going with it. Um, I knew the journey they were making, the territory that they had to cross within it. So while I didn't sort of sit down each day sort of with a chapter plan, I knew ultimately where I was going and the pace I had to get there at. So I pretty much knew what I'd had to achieve by the end of the day. But it just sort of happened really rather than sort of being sort of a structured, disciplined process. And uh, I've spoken to some writers before who will say rather ambiguously it has to be said that mm. they imagine the story as a shape they can't they can't like thoroughly understand it but it just it takes I a know shape what you in mean. can you yeah. can you try and expand on that for the for the photographer of the lost what what was this shape for you it's a bit of a sort of an amorphous thing isn't it really but I, I know exactly what you mean when you say that um they sort of you start off from a particular point, you know exactly where, you know, you know roughly where you're going to in the ending and um, you know um, the different narratives that you're weaving together within that and sort of how um, you're going to have to plat those in order for it to sort of still be sort of satisfying and interesting for the reader and for them to sort of to keep up their interest in it. Um, while I didn't have sort of an elaborate on paper post-it note plan, um, it follows two characters and I knew the relationship between those two characters and at what points they were going to have to meet and at what points they were going to have to pull apart. So roughly, I couldn't draw it for you, <laughs> but um, I knew how those two stories interweaved um, and where I had to bring them together. So yeah, well, there wasn't sort of any sort of detailed structure there. There was sort of a momentum. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Back with more from Caroline in just a sec. Listen, I know I said thanks to everyone sending in kind words to me earlier on in the show, so I just want to doubly say thanks uh, to those who are sparing just a little bit more and pledging to support the show over on Patreon. If we've at all helped the way that you tell your stories, if you want to give something a little bit back, I love making the show, but I want to bring you more of them. I want you to bring you them as frequently as I can. And all these costs do kind of add up, you know, ferrying all around the country, buying new equipment, buying books, buying the coffees for, for the authors, little things. But they do just add up little by little. So if you can help out in any way, I'd love for you to do so. Um, You can spare what you can over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. There are little bits that you get from that as well. Badges, bookmarks, nothing too grand, but just little tokens to show that I really appreciate you helping us out and to show that you are part of this just incredible writing community that we've got going on here on the show. So if you can, it doesn't have to be a lot. But it's there if you fancy supporting the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Remember, that's not the only way that you can help out the show either, uh, because this podcast is supported by Libro.fm audiobooks. Uh, Libro.fm, they let you purchase, buy audiobooks directly from your local bookstore. Now, this is really only available uh, if you're in America. They're hoping to bring it to the UK and across the world a little later on this year. But if you're in the States, listen up for this one. You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks on Libro FM, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers all around the country. With them, you get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. So you're not missing out. It's not cheaper. It's the same price, but by paying that, you know that you're not contributing to some just like mega behemoth that's kind of taking over the world in warehouses in places where they really probably should be paying more money. That's not for me to say, though. Um, you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports the community, this writing community. Now, you listening right now, you can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. To get it, you need to go to libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M and enter the code ROUTINE. You get three months audiobooks for the price of one. And with each listen, you can take pride in knowing that you're helping support local bookstores. This is if you're in America. As I say, they're hoping to come to the UK later on this year. Head to libro.fm and use the code ROUTINE. Right, let's get back to it then with this week's guest on Writer's Routine, Caroline Scott. Her new novel, The Photographer of the Lost, is out right now. If you're in America, I believe it's called The Poppy Wife. It was a Radio 2 book club pick. It's all about Eddie, who is searching for her missing husband after the First World War. Now, in this part of the chat, we talk about how she tells stories of the First World War without 
referring to the standard tropes of the genre, how she managed to avoid the cliches that you usually find with with war stories particularly. Uh, We also talk about her love of description and how she used that to bring all the fields and the journey of Eddie and Harry to life. And we pick things up talking about that very first idea for the book and and the, the spark. Where did it come from? been in my head for an awful long time this one really um i've always had an interest in the first world war sort of from being a teenager um i did history at university <laughs> even right back at that point you know, 30 years ago um i had an idea about a soldier coming back from the first world war and struggling to fit back into society so that sort of that little nugget of an idea was sort of it's been through many iterations really i've written sort of various unpublished short stories and other sort of half-finished novels that sort of have been exploring the same idea. And um, yeah, they're all sort of, to a degree, sort of reinventions of the same character. Um, But then we got to 2014 and I started exploring my family's own experience of the First World War. And I found out a lot more about what my great-grandfather had been through. Um, And there were things that he'd never spoken about and things that shocked me to discover. And that sort of really gave momentum to this project. And I increasingly began snatching little ideas sort of from my great-grandfather's experience and that sort of fed into it and really sort of that pushed it forwards and gave me the motivation that this was a story that I wanted to tell that I wanted to share with people that this history that sort of we don't discuss too much and um that we perhaps ought to be a little bit more aware of and so yeah that sort of really gave me the momentum to push on with it and to try and find an agent and to try and get a publisher and to try and get this out in the world because I felt this was an important history to share so so there was all quite a lot building to that moment yeah do you remember yeah. <laughs> If, if you say that you had, you know, flirted with the idea yeah. in story form before, do you remember the, a particular, perhaps a tipping point that that led you to sit down uh, with your pen and your paper and and tell this particular story? Um, Why this story at this moment after twenty fourteen? Um, I'd had, I say, I had another go. I'd had another sort of false start novel that I wrote in at the start of 2014 um and then i think i sort of particularly got an idea about this person and the idea of the cameras i was working on another project a non-fiction project and i kept seeing adverts for photographers who were traveling along the western front after the first world war taking photographs of grave sites and i thought what a strange thing to do for a living how bizarre and most of these men were ex-servicemen how weird to have to go back to the places where you fought yourself and to be there tasked with taking a photograph of a gravesite on behalf of some poor bereaved family back in the UK and that's probably all, that's the only connection they're ever going to have with where their loved one is is, is now remaining. Um, and that, again, that was a real trigger and that sort of formed the character of Harry, that was his purpose in France, that was a reason why he'd gone back and, yeah, that really sort of pushed into creating this particular character and his particular journey. So then you have this idea. Mm. What happens next? I know that you're not, for this story anyway, you weren't that thoroughly a plotter. Yeah. But what did you do when, when you've got all these kind of notions of characters that are going on in the background and you think, right, I'm going to tell this story. Yeah. What, what do you do? Um, I, I think I just started writing scenes really for start rather than sort of beginning with page one, how am I going to introduce this story? Um, I imagined him in particular situa- situations and I wrote scenes and um, contacts and conversations 
and then bit by bit I started sort of weaving them together and um, the idea of sort of the other characters came into my head and the relationships between them and then bit by bit it was a bit like a patchwork really I sort of stitched it all together and um, there wasn't sort of like a driving force that got me from the start to the end but at the start I was sort of yeah it was very much sort of like scraps of scenes and images experiences conversations um, or randomly on bits of paper all over and then I had to sort of figure out how I were to tie all these things together and how I was going to give it a momentum and how that would be something the a reader would engage with that they'd want to carry on turning the pages that they'd empathize with these characters so bit by bit it all got wove together and it happened. <laughs> How did you tie it all together? Can you talk me through that thought process then? If, if, you, if you've got this collage of, mm. of Harry and, and, and Francis, if you've, if you've got all these things going on, then... Yeah. How do you, especially if you're doing it longhand as well, yeah. it's much easier to do on Word. I think it ties it together really is the relationships. Once I got sort of my two or three main characters and figured out how they responded to each other, what their histories were, um, what conversations they were having together, sort of bit by bit, it's those emotions and those relationships that sort of the, that tie the whole thing together. And then um, with those relationships, you then sort of create a narrative for those characters. And yeah, bit by bit, the collage sort of got stitched together and thread pulled through it and it all tightened up and... I got roughly got my first draft down and then um, I began sending it out to agents and I got some really good feedback, really helpful feedback. Um, and that really sort of helped with the next iterations of it, sort of to pull it more tightly into a story rather than sort of just a random patchwork of my ideas and images. And So what were those ideas destined to be, do you think? So day one, when you sit down to write, what are your intentions for what this will be? What is this story going to be in your head? Are you, I know you've got this... But as I say, this collage of ideas. Mm. What what do you kind of want it to say by the end? Um, I wanted the reader to go on a journey. I wanted to the reader to sort of feel that they were travelling with Harry and um, that they could sort of put themselves in his shoes and sort of go on an an, know it's a cliche, but an emotional journey with him really. Um, knowing his background, knowing that he's been a soldier in the First World War, sort of, I wanted them to sort of experience how difficult it was for him to go back to those places and to walk the same roads that he'd walked with his brothers, but now he was the last one left. And I, I really wanted the, to take the reader to those places and for them to empathise with him. And I love doing descriptive writing. I, if I'm not disciplined by an editor, I'll, I'll pontificate forever. I just, I just love describing places and um, landscapes. Um, but I started off, as I said, uh, a lot of it was inspired my, by my great-grandfather's experience of the First World War. So I started off with his service records. So I knew where his battalion had been from day to day, the engagements that had been involved in and sort of where it started and where it ended. So that, in a way, that gave me structure too, because that is the journey of the soldiers in this book. So, yeah, that... Um, that is their war. So, um, and I went on from that to, I found um, diaries and letters written by men who'd been in the same battalion and memoirs. So layer by layer, sort of, I, I built up the experiences and I'd, I'd really sort of tried to pick through what they must have been through. Um, as I say, I also worked really extensively with photographs. Um, I've always collected photographs and postcards from the First World War myself from being a teenager. So I, I had a lot of material of my own, but then um, I worked with the collection of the Imperial War Museum and the Commonwealth War Grace Commission so I spent an awful lot of time looking at photographs and um, through a magnifying glass sort of like trying to sort of join all the little sepia dots and um, really trying to sort of put myself in these places and look around and then try and convey all that detail to the reader and yeah try and really sort of make them feel they were in that time and place as much as possible. Is that helpful? Is, is there a real connection there? You 
you know, looking through a photograph in the Imperial War Museum and then you writing up an, another unrelated Absolutely. story. It's completely helpful. Yeah, that totally fuels it, I, particularly writing historical fiction. I, I don't know how people write about the Tudors and things, really. <laughs> that, that must be really, really difficult because um, the First World War is so extensively photographed, every little aspect of it. It was caught on camera, so it's in a way it's easy to write about because you can look at a particular location and get a very good idea of what was around you 360 degrees and um, it, as a writer that put me into that place and hopefully that comes through the writing and the reader will be drawn into that place as well I hope anyway that's the theory you've written it in the present tense yes why because I thought it was more immediate I think sort of particularly I mean I loved Hilary Mantle's novels and I, that sort of really gave you a very um immediate sense sort of of the Tudor world and I kind of wanted to recreate the same thing with the First World War to pull the reader in and make it as up close as possible and I think with the first person present tense sort of you can achieve that more um I wanted I didn't want any remoteness I didn't want this sort of to seem like a sepia photograph I wanted it to come alive and for them to smell the smells and hear the sounds and yeah that, that was what I wanted to achieve anyway so was there a considered thought there that you that you that yeah, you think there was yeah my, I wouldn't my mum wouldn't be pleased and mum hates historical novels written in first person present tense but um for me I, I've read a lot of them myself and I think it works I think it does create that immediacy and that sense of being up close with that time and that place and so ho- hopefully this one will work too for readers while we're talking about voice let me ask you about the actual words on the page how much thought did you give to the next word that was coming Gosh, that's a difficult question. Uh, I tend to, as I say, I write quite fast, really. It flows quite easy, so I don't sort of sit there agonising over the next word necessarily. Um, Occasionally I have a little pause and there'll there'll be an idea or an image that's just sort of slightly out of reach and you can't quite grab it. Um, Yeah, and I'll have a little pause and sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll... I'll reflect on that for a few minutes and eventually it'll come to me. But generally, I, I write pretty fluidly. And How about in the edit? When you are, when you are rewriting, are you nitpicking over yeah. the precise word? Edit is completely different. Uh, first draft, as I say, it, it rushes out. It's all pretty fluid. I, I don't worry too much over getting everything exactly as it ought to be. That all happens later. But then... Um, I'm a big editor. I've, I've probably I've been through this one probably a thousand times. So yeah, and then I, I'm really really careful about every word and phrase and the rhythm and the rhymes and yeah, just the sound of the language and yeah, I'll pick over that for ages until I get it. That it I read it out loud because um, yeah, I, I want it to sound right. And what did you notice about the way you were writing during your edits? Were there little things that kept cropping up and you? Th- or hang on, I need to stop doing that. The words I repeat. <laughs> I just in the coffee edit of the next one. Um, I have an addiction to using modifiers. Everything is just or quite. So when I write my next one, I've, I've got to eliminate certain words because, yeah, I think like everybody, there's certain words that you overuse and the process of being ed- edited, it makes you very conscious of your own little foibles and how, yeah, there are things that you do repeat. So, yes, absolutely. I'm sure everybody does the same. Yeah, I think, Steve, yeah. I think, think Stephen King used to pick himself up on doing um, adverbs. So he yes. just cut all adverbs from his writing. I like an adverb. I'm yeah. an adverb person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's okay. Each to their own. Absolutely. Um, quite often on the show, writers will talk about their story like a roadmap. Yeah. Very hard to do with something where you've got this patchwork in your head of what the story is going to be. Mm. At what point when you're on the road of your story do you figure out where it's going to end? Um, 
I, with this one, I kind of knew how the two main characters in it were going to come together and the revelation that they were going to have in the end. Um, I have to say, the ending that it has now is not the ending that it originally had. Okay, why? Um, I quite like novels with untidy endings. I, I'm not, a, as a reader, I'm not a big fan of having sort of a, a tidy resolution. I quite like question marks at the end. Um, but not everybody does. So I had to do a certain amount of tidying and, yeah, the threads had to be pulled together a little bit more closely than they originally were. And, yeah, so hopefully there'll be a more satisfying experience for most readers. But And when you are when you were on your roadmap, how, how open were you to... And you've got still got an idea of what the story is going to be. How open were you to your characters, you know, heaving you down side streets? They like doing that. <laughs> you have to rein them in a bit. I'm quite inclined to do that. So, yeah, a lot of little side journeys and yeah they had to get edited out of it sort of to keep it a bit cleaner and sort of to have a bit more momentum and a bit more sense of sort of we're heading in a particular direction because yeah I'm, I'm very easily distracted I will if I like a character I like a character's company if I'm enjoying a conversation between two characters quite often I will veer off far too much in that direction then have to bring it all back again and do a lot of deleting so I read a lot of novels about the first world war myself it's my thing so everyone new one that comes out I tend to buy it um and there are certain things that get repeated over and over again there tends to be the same battles and it tends to be the same types yeah. and um yeah everybody has a little bit of um, ptsd <laughs> it's sort of, there are certain tropes that sort of that come out again and again I, I was very very deliberately trying to avoid that i didn't want to write the cliche standard novel about the first world war i wanted the personalities in it to be different i wanted to show um, a strong female character in it. I didn't want sort of a little shrinking violet as so often women are in novels set in the 1920s. So yeah, it was quite a deliberate process of, of not rehearsing all those cliches. How did you execute that uh, that, 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 that deliberate purpose? How, how did you make sure that your, uh, your lead is not a shrinking violet, that the soldier is mm. not just a... As, as they are always portrayed. Yeah, uh, I knew them pretty well before I started writing. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about it, I think, before I put pen to paper. So I had a pretty good idea of what the personality of these people were, what their voices sounded like, what they responded to, what the relationships were between them. Um, so yeah, really sort of, as I was dog walking, I was <laughs> getting to know all these people and sort of thinking about how they were going to interact and what I wanted them to be like. And you have to spend a lot of time in the presence of these people. So you've got to like them yourself. You want to... Yeah, I mean, you're going to be at least a couple of hours, a couple of years, sort of hanging around with them. So yeah, you've got to like them. You've got to respond to them too, as a as a writer. So and then for your next story, mm. the one you've just finished, which you're yeah. just finishing up the edits of right now, why the sudden move to plot everything so thoroughly, so you knew what you were doing every day? Um, I from being in a position where I didn't have a publishing contract, suddenly um, I, I got twelve months to deliver. Uh, my next manuscript um my agent brilliantly kept saying to me get on with it which i'm really grateful to her now for now um because yeah that was really really good advice um so i knew i had a time frame to write it in um i'd also learned quite a lot along the process of being edited about um keeping the momentum up keeping readers engaged tell us more about that how what, what did you learn about keeping the momentum up how are you keeping the readers engaged um i I was in quite an unusual situation with the photographer of the loss, really, because the the rights, uh, the US rights sold quite on, early on in the process. So we actually worked with two different editors on this. I had an editor in London and an editor in New York. Um, and first of all, we did the edit in London and then it went out to New York and then there was a whole next set of edits that had to be done. Um, and working with two different editors and talking with them quite regularly, I got a real sense of uh, what their priorities were, what they felt that readers required from a novel, 
Um, I had to sort of like crank up the emotional content quite a lot. Um, I had to put in more female characters because their idea, um, certainly in America, was that it was that the majority of readers of this novel were likely to be female. So I had to sort of give it more female perspective. How do you feel about that? So obviously the dream is always to be a writer and to tell the yeah. story the way that you want to. How do you feel about having to alter that for commercial gain? Occasionally, you have the odd little niggle, naturally, because this is your baby and you have an idea of, sort of how you want it to grow up. Um, but uh, realistically, I love writing. I want to carry on writing. I want this to be my career. And these people know what they're doing. And you'd be a fool not to listen to them, really, and take that advice on board. And, yeah, and then there's the occasional thing that... I've disagreed with and I've not done and people we've had conversations about it and people have been great it's a real cooperative effort but yeah realistically you want to carry on writing you want to sell novels so yeah you listen to the people that are around you who who know what they're doing and know and who know how to sell novels does this have a separate title in America yes it does it's the poppy wife in America yeah the marketing of it's quite different in America it's got um, female character on the front it's much more soft and flowery and yeah it's Positioned quite differently for a different market. We in the UK read a lot of novels about the First World War. The average reader has a pretty good sense of that history and um, what the cliches of the, the genre are. Um, whereas in the US, um, readers read far less about the First World War. It's, it's more of a new subject to them. So um, it was set up in a way um, for readers who didn't necessarily have the background that a British reader would have. So yeah, it's quite interesting, the two markets and how it's been tailored. What, what, what would you like readers uh, of a Caroline Scott novel to think when they see your third or fourth one on the shelves in a few years time when they've pick... got to have it <laughs> <laughs> yes obviously pay loads pay way above the asking price as well uh, no so what, what do you want them when, when they see your name on the top what what do you think they hope they are in for I think I have a type of novel, um, my, my second novel, again, it's sort of set post-First World War, because I think that's just sort of a, such an endlessly interesting period of history with all the dislocation physically, psychologically. I have no idea about anything between the First and the Second World War. I think a lot of the people the main stuff don't. that we are taught about, yeah. which is really why the only thing I knew, know about between the First and Second World War is why the Second World War ended up exactly. happening. Exactly, yeah. You did that one at school, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of courses and consequences. And, yeah. like, it, it seemed to me that there was just one uh, like 15-year-long Treaty of Versailles and then that was kind yeah. of it. I think that's it. People have this sort of image that sort of we have the armistice, we have the Treaty of Versailles, and then everyone sort of goes and grabs a cocktail and we all go off and dance to Charleston, which it really isn't like at all. It's certainly, um, I'm in here too, but also in France and Belgium, there's devastation, absolute devastation. The, the, it's like an apocalyptic landscape that they've got to reclaim. But very quickly, um, after the guns fall silent, the people from that region are pouring back in again. Um, farmers are trying to sort of recuperate the land, but the land is poisoned. It's full of bodies. It's full of ammunition. Um, people are coming back and the villages have just gone. They've just been scraped off the map. So all um, these little shanty towns are then built sort of out of corrugated iron and plywood. Um, and for years, the bodies are being recovered on a huge scale. Uh, I think 250,000 bodies get dug up in the first three years after the First World War because there are just bodies everywhere and they have to be sort of corralled into cemeteries. So I find it's just a fascinating landscape and sort of just it must just have been such a strange place to be in. Um, and that draws my imagination back time and time and again. And I've done the more research I do about it, the more I realise there's, there's more to learn. And um yeah, that sort of is my thing. And I think I will keep on going back to it. My, my second novel, again, it, 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 it's mostly set in 1921. Um, I'm 
think starting to think about a third novel now and again sort of I'm, I'm returning to that territory so I think readers will get an idea that sort of this is my time and place and I have a sort of a particular style of writing that I, I like descriptive writing I like to sort of try and create the world around the reader so hopefully readers will engage with that and they'll want more of it and hopefully we'll get to write more books and they'll want to buy them. <laughs> And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Caroline for coming on the show. If you've enjoyed what you heard and you fancy having a read, we've got all the links for you to buy it over at writersroutine.com. Next week, we are chatting to B.A. Paris all about her brand new book, The Dilemma. Now, if what you've heard today has helped the way that you tell your stories at all, please do support the show. Help us out over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Use that Libro FM audiobook offer as well. That'll help us out, especially if you're in the States. Uh, And you can always review the show over on Apple Podcast Store and make sure you give us a follow on Twitter. We are at Writer's Pod. If you've got anything to say, fire it over to me. Comments, concerns, compliments as well. Uh, Writersroutine.com is what you need to do for that. And I will see you next week with B.A. Paris. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 